Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in this episode, I speak to Professor Daniel Green of the University of Maryland. Daniel is the author of The Promise of Access, a book about how technology is increasingly used as a tool to combat poverty. Hello, Professor Daniel Green. Hi, Nicholas. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're very happy to have you on. Daniel, you're the author of uh, The Promise of Access, Technology, Inequality, and the Political Economy of Hope, which is a pretty cool title. It's a book about, uh, I'd say, it's sort of techno-utopianism, uh, the idea that you, know, you can uh, pretty much innovate your way out of um, any kind of social problem that you may face. And specifically, I think I um, underlined this somewhere in your book, in your own words, you say that the book explores how poverty was transformed into a problem of technology and how subsequently organizations addressing poverty uh, are transforming themselves in response to this shift of understanding of what poverty is and how it should be remedied. So in your reading, when and, and how did poverty become a problem of technology? Great question. Great. I, the thing that really motivated a lot of the work here was the way that in the early 21st century, um, our primary response to either bad jobs or joblessness um, was to tell people to learn to code. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I was really interested in how that became the dominant response in, in part because it was the flippancy of that response, and I think this is borne out in my field work, most people know that's not the real solution, that there is that there's a lot more going on. So, so the book is structured largely around an institutional ethnography of different kinds of um, organizations that are um, you know, kind of boundary institutions in the labor market that uh, help people uh, get into the labor market in the first place or support them on their way out of it, places like schools and libraries. I also look at startups as kind of the ideal type organization that teaches mm -hmm. other places how to reformat themselves. And, you know, it's, it's very rare to talk to a, a teacher who's, you know, working with working class kids in, in DC where most of the book takes place um, or a librarian or anyone else who will say that, you know, yes, I, you know, I'm teaching, um, you know, STEM classes or I'm giving all my students a laptop and, and I know that that is the thing that will save them everyone was quite honest that poverty is very complicated. There's a lot going on here, but nevertheless, this is the script that we have to read. You know, mm -hmm. this is the thing, this is the, this is what we've settled on as the solution. And so I wanted to explain that process because, you know, one of my baseline assumptions is always that, you know, people aren't stupid. <laughs> We're not just uh, tricked into believing these things. It has to bear um, some kind of reward for us in the real world, you know, ideological, material, whatever, um, for this to become common sense. Mm -hmm. um, so 
the book starts with a, a historical look at uh, where this idea came from. And I start in the late 60s, early 70s, because we had, uh, in the Johnson administration in particular, there had been some early experiments with uh, teaching, I think the phrase of the day was like inner city youth, um, how to maintain IBM mainframes and, and that sort of thing. Um, and these were interesting little experiments. They were not something that the administration was throwing its whole weight behind in the war on poverty. Nothing like Obama um, getting in front of everybody in computer science education week and telling people that, you know, don't just play an app, code it. You know, that the, the, at that point, it really is our primary way of solving poverty. So what happened in the, in the interim? Uh, in the 70s, you know, the wheels fall off the bus for a variety of reasons from, you know, the oil shock to uh, the end of Bretton Woods, uh, defeat of organized labor, defeat of the colonization movement, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, our economy really starts to, to change. And um, as we deindustrialize and shift into more of a service focused economy, uh, we also start to really change uh, the way that we respond to people who have left the labor market. Mm -hmm. So where we had previously um, drawn uh, pretty sharp lines between um, who was a worker and who wasn't, and we, you know, most often identified workers as white male breadwinners, um, provided a family wage to support them, um, and had uh, temporary resources for especially uh, mothers um, who were without a job or without a husband or something like that. Um, you know, and, and hard resources to get, super racist, but you know, nonetheless, there was this kind of clear line between who's in and out of the labor market. And that really starts to change in the 70s and 80s. And crucially, at the same time, we also see an explosion in prisons and policing. We really start to, in many ways, pursue a carceral response to the problem of poverty. And this, in many ways, um, explains a lot of joblessness today and our responses to it. You know, we, the unemployment rate would be much, much higher we always accounted for the millions of people who are under state supervision in some way. And the way that the, uh, the Republican Party and the conservative wing of American politics reacts to this changing situation where we have a new economy, where millions of people are thrown out of work in, um, in industry in particular, is through a uh, pretty hard line response of, you know, go to work, look for a job. If you don't, you're a drag on the economy and we need to lock you up. You're a threat. Um, it's a very punitive, carceral wing of um, the uh, a response to poverty. And it seems to clash with this American ideal that there's opportunity everywhere, that anyone can get a job whenever they need it. Um, because the, uh, the attack on jobless people is, is heavily racialized, that contradiction does not seem like that big of a deal to like the Reagan coalition. You know, they're, they're very mm -hmm. comfortable saying like, out of work, you're a problem, you know, mm -hmm. so we need to continue. At that same, and that is very successful for them. You know, they, they really do take over American politics. 
Um, and the Democrats do not return to power until the 90s. When the Democrats do return to power, they're a very different party from the New Deal coalition that oversaw the war on poverty um, and similar things. They have changed in the 80s uh, at both the level of uh, leadership and financing of the party and at the more ground level of who their primary voters and activists mm -hmm. are. So over the course of the 80s, um, through organizations like the Democratic Leadership Council, um, which you know, included Gore, um, Clinton, people like Gephardt, they started recruiting a new class of financial supporters that they did not have before that were particularly from tech and finance. Hmm. Um, folks from Apple, MCI, um, HP, uh, Goldman, places like that. And these folks were a little perturbed at the Reagan revolution, both for disagreements with uh, you know, heavily racist policy, but also because of a fear that the United States was um, perhaps becoming a little more isolationist and perhaps withdrawing necessary support from research and development the kind mm -hmm. of things mm -hmm. that they thought would uh, keep us competitive with Germany and Japan, who were the big you know, uh, boogeymen at those times in the advanced economies. And at the same time as those new kind of funders came in at a high level, the voters in the Democratic coalition, or at least the, the activists, the, the people that um, were really important in the party, that were you know, going to uh, staff campaigns, the people that... Uh, we're getting pitched to in focus groups, that kind of thing also changed. And that was no longer the multiracial working class of the post New Deal era. Mm. These were a new group of people um, that the newspapers uh, labeled Atari Democrats after the popular video game system in the 80s. And these folks looked like me. You know, they were professionals, uh, largely white, largely suburban, largely working in jobs in tech and finance, perhaps health services, but office work, computer work in wealthy suburbs like, uh, you know, along Route 128 outside of Boston, Montgomery County, Maryland, um, or Silicon Valley itself. Mm -hmm. These folks were very, very committed to formal equality. They were dyed-in-the-wool liberals in that regard. They were less big fans of redistributions that affect um, that affected them. So very much for fair housing laws, but as people like Lily Geismer have documented, fierce protesters against the construction of subsidized housing in their neighborhood right. that would be um, inhabited by working class black folks um, and fierce protesters against things like two-way busing to integrate schools. They were uh, professionals whose advancement and promotion usually depended on either their uh, geographic mobility or their education. Mm -hmm. And as such, they were not unionized and did not owe any uh, fealty to the major unions. And for these folks, they really did believe that, and there, you know, there's some data to support this in the 90s, especially, that their education and their skills had led to a, a serious economic returns. And they wanted to kind of generalize that success program to the rest of the economy, especially for those people who they felt were left out mm -hmm. um, and were punished by the Reagan revolution. 
what uh, and these people ended up winning. The Clinton and Gore coalition came into power. And for me, the key thing that they do here is to really promise the internet and the tools that connect to it as the solution to the labor market dislocations of the information economy. So yes, we've deindustrialized. Yes, it seems like the world is full of you know crap mick jobs, but if you are connected to the internet then you are de facto, the, so the pitch goes, um, connected to global labor markets and you right. will be able to find opportunity anywhere. So the commercialization of the internet is often treated as a um, kind of technological sideshow in the Clinton and Gore administration, but the language that they're using, the policies uh, that they're connecting that to makes it very clear that the administration and the kind of race class coalition around it really considered um, technology policy to be poverty policy. Right. And that solves the contradiction um, in neoliberal poverty policy up to that point, this contradiction between there's opportunity everywhere on the one hand, but on the other hand, if you screw up, we're gonna lock you in a cage. Mm. Those two things seem to clash but the commercialization of the internet allows this new version of the Democratic Party to reconcile those things because there is opportunity wherever there is internet. If you do not take that opportunity, that then is a signal that you have made a choice to right. step outside of the information economy and thus you are a drag on national productivity and that threat needs to be contained because you're gonna hold down your community and your country. You know, this is like, it's not quite industrial policy, but there is like serious talk here about privatization, support for private endeavors, you know, the deregulation of internet infrastructure as the kind of thing that is going to power Americans into the information age. So the uh, transformation of uh, technology policy into poverty policy, making um, the problem of poverty a problem of technology is a move that really holds together this Atari Democrat coalition mm -hmm. allows them to retake power and is really the glue that holds together so many seemingly disconnected things in this neoliberal coalition. Um, and it's it's often very hard for us to see because we're, we're used to talking about these things like tech infrastructure, poverty policy, labor market policy as all these different problems. But very obviously, it's the same people involved in doing all those yeah, things. Yeah. And so I wanted to, in order to set up the field work that is the bulk of the book, I really wanted to kind of bring those threads together. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for giving that historical context here. Your book opens with this, and I think you mentioned it now as well, with this great um, observation of this PR campaign in uh, Washington, D.C., which um, I forget exactly what the wording is, but it's something along the lines of the internet, your future depends on it. Or what was it exactly? exactly. What? Yep, that was it. <laughs> Just yeah. as uh, at minimum a veiled threat. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, really kind of interesting in, in, in summarizing some of those um, different uh, strands that you were just putting uh, out there for us. But at the same time, of course, you know, the US is creating a new economy, as you were saying, right? And that there is at least supposedly an enormous demand for these new skills for people to code, right? To be able to code an app, to, um, I don't know, work as uh, IT support or something like that. Let me maybe start with, with asking you, to what extent, you know, is this reasonable? 
poverty policy in the sense that, you know what, we have created this incredibly um, productive new arm or new frontier of the economy that presumably doesn't need a lot of labor. Um, so what's wrong with enabling people to f to go into that new you know, realm of opportunity and be able to thrive there with new skills? Yeah, I think, I mean, the easiest response is empirical, is right. that we, we've tried it and mm -hmm. it hasn't worked. So we, if, you know, obviously these things are very complicated, there's a million different causes, but if the commercialization of the internet was the thing that was going to push people past poverty, then we probably wouldn't have had stagnant or declining wages for the majority of working Americans over the last 30 years. If increased training was the thing that was going to um, give you a life raft in the global economy, then we would expect the wage premium of college education to rise over time and instead it's fallen. And most of the explanations for those kind of things are not, you know, particularly technical. It's about, you know, stagnant economic growth compared to the, um, the high wage era of the immediate post-war decades. But I, I think like if we look at where jobs are being created, mm. that often gives us the, the easiest answer. And, and the, that's been pretty consistent over the last 30 years. Like there are more and more job openings for software developers. That is true. They are an order of magnitude smaller than the jobs being created in low-wage service work mm -hmm. that often doesn't even require a high school degree. Mm -hmm. Most of the jobs of the future are in food prep, low-wage healthcare work, right. cleaning and custodial work, those kinds of things. That's where most jobs are. And if that's true, then it may be that pushing everyone into software development training for a fairly limited number of jobs may have the perverse effect of lowering wages mm -hmm. in software development because we have a may have a glut of of well-trained software developers and there is you know some data to the case you know like in even if we zoom out beyond software developers like most people with a so-called stem degree do not work in stem Mm -hmm. You know, there's, uh, there's a, there's a surplus there. And we also know that, you know, it's, it's not always necessarily training that job interviews are selecting for, right. um, there we're often selecting for, um, cultural factors, you know, you want to hire someone else who went to Stanford or, you know, someone else who, um, uh, looks like you shares your interests, those kind of things. And so we, you know, we've, we've, tried a training oriented poverty reduction policy. It largely hasn't worked and it may even, you know, have some perverse effects of either uh, lowering prevailing wages or pushing people into areas of the economy where they can't find jobs. The other thing I would say is that what has accompanied this desire to, to train up everyone as high as possible is a accompanying drop as best as we can tell, it's hard to measure, in how much on-the-job training employers do. Yeah, that is really interesting. So it's a hard thing to measure, but Peter Capelli has done the best job of this. And the, you know, over the last 30 or 40 years, the amount of on-the-job training that em um, employers give has fallen through the floor. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we've also seen that um, the most common way to get a promotion is not as was true in the immediate post-war decades, you know, staying in the same company for decades and, you know, slowly rising up the ladder, 
the main way to get a promotion now is to leave the company and go somewhere else. These, mm-hmm. these lat- lateral promotions or horizontal promotions. And so what does that tell us? That tells us that the cost of training is being outsourced to the public sector or to individuals themselves, your university, your school, your library, your code academy or whatever, because employers do not want to take on that cost. Employers do not want to invest in their workers in the long term. And so even the employees that they currently have seem to be making the correct decision that, well, this I'm not going to be rewarded for my continual work at this thing, so I need to leave in order to get a promotion. That, I think, is one of the big things driving this training push. Yeah. The interesting thing that I noticed in your uh, book was that at some point you were uh, quoting Clinton after having been instrumental in commercializing the internet, saying that, you know, we've created this new economy now. And in so many words, and ultimately says, well, now we need to create a new person, if you will, you know, to, to match that new economy. And I was really, um, I think that is part of the underlying or through line theme of your book that you need a certain kind of person or you need to be a certain kind of person that has something to do with education, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot about your uh, attitude, about the the way that you understand work, how you um, conduct yourself in the workplace. And I think the uh, shift from within company uh, promotion to this lateral movement uh, that you describe as a pivot, deriving that from the way that startups behave. I think that that's really a perfect um, metaphor. And it's really... Um, Uh, reminded of something that I read recently about uh, Fordism, uh, where allegedly, I don't know to what extent this is true, but I guess for for Henry Ford, one of the biggest uh, things that he was interested in is to create a different civilization almost, right? So there there was a sociology department in uh, in the Ford Motor Company that was effectively telling their workers how to live right, how to live the Ford way, to be able to be maximally productive within this new, radically different way of producing uh, economic value. And I think that's um, obviously very different now, but similar in process, right? So it's it's really necessary f- to have new people that are able to um, to work in this new environment. So in, in that sense, you know, the 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 skills push makes sense. In that, you know, I, I suppose if you want to be economically successful in this new economy, you do need new skills. But I guess it's uh, fallacious to assume that that's going to solve poverty, right? That everyone is going to um, benefit from this equally. Uh, presumably, it's going to be mostly people that had uh, that were relatively economically privileged already that are going to be able to best conduct themselves in this new environment. But yeah, let us let us shift to some of the institutions that you explore in your book. You start by uh, describing a startup. What is significant about that? Sure. So like you said, the the fieldwork section of the book, which is the the bulk, is a it's an institutional story. I'm I'm mm-hmm. interviewing you know a lot of individual people. I'm I'm watching a lot of you know small group processes. But ultimately, what I'm interested in is the way these different kind of organizational forms hold people together um, and teach us to act collectively. Uh, and that's true of both um, within and, and between organizations. So a lot of the lessons um, of how startups are organized end up uh, through you know, various funding mechanisms or just the, you know, the desperation to appeal to politicians being a pu- imposed on public sector organizations. Mm-hmm. 
if they're, they're not a great fit. Because the story that I'm trying to tell here by connecting these different institutions in one city and watching the ideas and the people and the resources flow between them um, is like you, you said, the, um, the whole picture of the economy, especially at the city level, uh, such that uh, changes in the mode of production are mirrored in what we might call the mode of reproduction. You know, the, the kinds of education and training and cultural policy that accompany something like um, tech-led gentrification. You know, mm -hmm. there, there have been plenty of really wonderful books about um, the tech takeover of our cities. Um, I was really interested in the question as, okay, if they take over, what happens to the rest of the city? You know, what happens right. to our schools, our libraries, that kind of thing. Um, but to answer that question, we first have to start with um, the uh, kind of ideal type organization, the startup. Mm -hmm. And for so for me, what I wanted to get out of that was to, you know, one, find a, a really you know, a relatively well-managed place. It's, it's very easy to find shady organizations that are, you know, uh, fail because of, uh, you know, egomaniacs in charge or whatever. Um, but it was important for me to find a well-managed place, just like it was important to find a well-managed school and startup to look at these um, larger structural trends. And there, um, what I focused on, uh, building on the work of people like Gina Neff, is how these uh, startup organizations the thing that holds them together is not any particular technical innovation. Mm -hmm. You know, there are there are startups of billions of dollars in funding that don't do anything more than make you know fancy websites, um, or you know think about their primary offering. Like Uber, at the end of the day, not so much a tech company as like a taxi dispatching company. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, those kinds of things. What holds these places together is the uh, a organizational orientation towards risk. And the idea that if these places have sufficient flexibility mm -hmm. to not just ride out economic risk, but to take advantage of it, master it, um, and increase your valuation through it. And so for them, the uncertainty of the present economy, these like economic dislocations that we seem to go through at increasing rates, the, the lack of good jobs is an opportunity. And they, do, and they mean that in a very serious way. So I wanted to figure out how, that, how people consented to that way of looking at economic life. And I did that at a couple of different levels. Um, so we talked about uh, founders mm -hmm. who are uh, extremely important in the tech sector, perhaps more so than other sectors because of the way venture capital funding works. Mm -hmm. um, in venture, you're often taking a extremely large bet um, on a, a portfolio of extremely unproven ideas. The way that ends up working is usually, you know, as with most things through interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, what, what young guy does the old guy want to take a chance on? Mm -hmm. um, you know, does he look like success? And so the founder really does need to kind of internalize values of the firm um, and perform those both for his subordinates and for his investors. Right. You know, he is the face of the firm in a way that is not just that kind of like um, 
you know, metaphorical like executive performance that we associate with other firms, but because he is the thing that they're banking on and, and because most likely he holds a majority equity stake, he really is the firm in a serious yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I think I have this quote from the, the in crowd, the, the company that I um, pseudonym, the company that I spent a lot of time with for the book, their CEO says, you know, we're all, everybody has a stake in the company. Everybody mm-hmm. has equity. Um, it's everybody's baby. I just, you know, I have the head and the legs and other people mm-hmm. might have a finger or something. Yeah, like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it's, so that's, that's very important to the, to him. So he needs to look like he's taking chances on risk and he needs to be able to pivot to new business opportunities when disaster strikes uh, and to perform that flexibility for his coworkers so that they have confidence in their ability to ride it out. Cause you know, working in a startup sometimes sucks. You know, these are 20 mm. hour days, you get paid in equity in part because you're not getting paid in cash <laughs> and uh, your job can change very suddenly. So during field work in crowd pivoted from being a company that sold consumer software to a company that sold enterprise software. They just, they mm-hmm. really switched how they were doing business. And the CEO really had to do a big job of selling investors and selling his, his subordinates on that. Buying into risk also comes up in um, not just from the top down, but within the organization itself. Uh, so uh, especially startup workers who are women, who we don't talk enough about in, uh, in tech criticism, are either taking on assigned duties as part of a HR department or a customer service department, and more likely taking on unassigned, unpaid duties to build up company culture. Mm-hmm. You know, making T-shirts, planning company outings, planning company happy hour, um, doing the kind of emotional counseling that happens when you're, you know, getting two hours of sleep a day for you know two weeks, something like that. Uh, and that kind of emotional labor is really important to getting people to feel like we're a family or whatever. Like we're, we're going through this crisis and we can handle any crisis because we're all together. We share the values of the company. And finally, the company needs to express those values and gain consent to those values, not just to internal stakeholders, but to external stakeholders as well. Mm-hmm. So the cities don't just come suddenly upon the idea that startups are their future. You know, they need to be sold on that idea by people from that sector, by policy entrepreneurs like like Richard Florida. So what I often saw was these ways that people in startup land, you know, slowly ingratiated themselves to power brokers in the city, in the mayor's office, major representatives of the business improvement district, major real estate developers, that kind of thing, um, in, so that the city and the elites in it would embrace tech as the thing that would help the city pivot and develop its own economy separate from whatever its industrial base was before. And in DC, this meant federal jobs. You know, the federal job stream was not drying up, but stagnant. And so they were really desperate for something else. And tech worked very hard to become that something else. And they were rewarded for it, you know, in various tax write-offs, friendly deals with developers and that sort of things. So the startup becomes really important because it gives us a way of reacting to economic risk and change uh, that we then take as an ideal type scenario, because these Mm -hmm. people look like they're succeeding wildly while everyone else is struggling. So why not take on their example? The important thing, of course, being that that example is uh, produced for specific audiences inside and outside the firm as a way to keep the firm alive. 
Yeah. And so how does that then relate to these other institutions of social reproduction that you explore here in the book? You specifically talk about libraries, which I thought was an interesting choice. Ultimately, it made a lot of sense. But initially, when I saw it, I was a little bit confused about it. But uh, uh, yeah, so libraries and a public charter school, which, which sort of was, to me, a little bit more obviously a labor market adjacent institution. But how do these institutions transform themselves to try to play whatever role they need to in this new economy? So it's hard right now to be a public school teacher or a mm -hmm. public librarian. And it has, uh, we have made that job harder over the last 40 years as we've uh, defunded these places or defunded um, other state services and then shunted their responsibilities onto teachers on libra and librarians. So, you know, and your average teacher or public librarian is not just a teacher or public librarian, they're also a translator, nutritionist, therapist, mm -hmm. nurse, yada, yada, yada. You know, they have, they have 20 different jobs because uh, 19 of those jobs were previously taken care of by some other public agency and uh, it is not now. So that, that work then comes to other folks. In DC specifically to, to the library question, like um, libraries are, especially in large city centers, often um, de facto homeless day shelters mm -hmm. uh, because most homeless shelters uh, do not allow people to hang out during the day. Mm -hmm. And there is frankly, not a lot of other public space in American cities, mm -hmm. um, especially when the weather gets rough. So libraries de facto, the last public space in the city. I mean, you know, I, I really do think that like, I, I, I buy the joke that, uh, someone proposed the idea of public libraries for the first time today, they would be dismissed as a communist plot. You know, what are, these things are free. Anyone can come here and they can get free help from people with advanced degrees. That's nuts. But both these places are under a lot of pressure and they're under at least three different kinds of pressure. So on the one hand, there's the straight up financial pressure of austerity. You know, you have mm -hmm. to do more of less. This is uh, especially prevalent during uh, recessions. Most of the period of, that the book covers is in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, which hit DC in kind of a staggered way. Uh, the immediate aftermath of the recession was uh, kind of blunted in DC because of the heavy uh, federal involvement in the labor market. But then um, sequestration hits in um, 2012 and uh, really starts gutting a lot of, uh, well, not gutting, taking a lot of money away from federal agencies um, or adjacent kind of nonprofits and contractors. Um, and so that starts to hit the city quite hard. These places like libraries and schools are often have more needs at exactly the moment when a lot of their funds are taken away. Yeah. So, you know, like the recession hits, local property taxes go down. Local mm -hmm. property taxes are the main funding source for libraries. At the same time, those local property taxes are going down. Many more people are out of work. So everyone's mm -hmm. coming to the library to get help on looking for new jobs, um, applying for housing, um, or just needing a place to spend their day because they're not at work all day anymore. So there's financial pressure. There's also uh, legitimation pressure. You know, that's as easy as, you know, who needs a public library anymore? We have Wikipedia. Right. And that, you know, that sounds silly, but we have all heard like very powerful people say some version of that. And when those very powerful people are the ones who are deciding your grants and such, you know, that, that mm. carries a lot of weight because uh, the tax burden has lowered uh, these 
public institutions are very sensitive to the needs of private funders or foundations uh, that could resolve some of that financial pressure, you know, places like the Gates Foundation. Yeah. And so learn to speak that language. And then finally, beyond like political pressure or financial pressure, there's just this kind of, um, let's say, uh, daily overload. Because there are so many different problems that are bought to these spaces, the best way of solving them is unclear. You know, it's, it's not clear that the school or the library has the tools to solve everything that it's confronted with. You know, we are asking these places to solve poverty in the U.S. It's a very complicated problem. And these places don't necessarily have the resources to do it. They have all these competing demands. So the order of operations or what their focus should be is not entirely clear. And what we find is that the push to, to learn to code, to do digital skills training and tech provision, it resolves all three of those pressures. So saying that you're gonna focus your mission on digital skills training and tech provision can uh, solve your financial pressures because mm. it, that is the language that funders speak now. You know, I, I can't overstate the importance of the Gates Foundation as like the single largest education funder in the country right now, perhaps in the world. Technology training and provision resolves the legitimation pressure. You know, you begin to look like the yeah, future, yeah. like a more serious organization. This was especially true in the library, which was desperately overdue for renovation and had to kind of convince the city that it was worthy of it. Uh, and it solves the uh, kind of problem of competing needs. You know, you, you have a very complicated world, but saying, you know, skills and tools defeats joblessness. You know, that's a nice, simple story. You know, that's something mm -hmm. that we can do. That's something that's under our control. So the service providers, especially at the ground level of these institutions, may not completely buy that story. Like they know the world is complicated, but they also know that they have no other options right. for, for what they're doing at the moment. And the tech sector ends up coming into that process in a couple of different ways. They might be direct funders through things like um, Google Grants for Education. Um, they might be the models of success that um, mm -hmm. training organizations or uh, funders or politicians put in front of them. Um, so for example, most librarians are now trained at information schools like mine. Um, so they're, they're taking classes alongside database engineers and entrepreneurs in a way that is very different from 40 years ago. Uh, and those people look like success. Um, and the tech sector may also provide the tools that allow these institutions to kind of directly triage their, their problems and focus squarely on this, this social mobility mission. Um, so the school, for example, used a version of Salesforce, which is like a customer relationship management software um, that my startup used. Uh, and instead of using it to manage their customer contracts, they used it to manage student discipline. But it, it gave you a view of student discipline that was entirely equivalent to the way the startup looked at like delinquent customer accounts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so the tech sector starts to filter in as a, as a model, um, as a culture, and as a direct solution to these problems.
Yeah, that was it. Was that actually called School Force, or did you? It make was that up? actually called School Force. I did not make that up. It was a real <laughs> company in Northern Virginia. That is uh, really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so that is ultimately then your answer as to why all these different institutions buy into what you call the uh, access doctrine, right? This idea that you can, if you just give people the right skills, if you create these institutions, then they can help themselves ultimately in this new economy. If you uh, teach people how to code. Uh, they'll all program apps and nobody will not be middle class anymore. I guess that's the pitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they is, then it's at the end of the day, even if it doesn't work for those people, it, the most important thing is that it works for these institutions. It keeps them alive. Right. Okay. Interesting. So what was the, uh, what is the aftermath then of this uh, transformation? I mean, I'm assuming it's not you know, necessarily uh, all bad, but as you're saying, right, like certain functions that these institutions used to uh, serve historically are then crowded out. Yeah, the, you know, it's it's one of those kind of iron law of institution things. Like if you're, this is not selfish, like the, the yeah. fact of the matter, or at least not mostly, the, you know, the fact of the matter is like, you know, you got to put on your own mask before assisting other passengers, right? And so the, principals of the school, CEOs of the library, those kind of things, um, recognize that you have to keep the institution alive if it's going to serve someone else in the future. Right. Now, unfortunately, over the course of just everyday operations, that means that those institutional goals teach people to code. Because that's the thing that keeps the institution alive, it's going to start crowding out legacy priorities. Mm-hmm. Just because that's the thing that funders need to see, that's the thing that regulators need to see, um, that's the thing that your boss needs to see if you're a teacher on the ground. So, for example, like at the library, um, the story I tell there is of the relationship between um, librarians who were uh, trying to build uh, makerspaces and educational um, facilities that would uh, look like the future and help secure the the renovation the library desperately needed. This is the central branch of um, DC Public Libraries, so the you know the central branch of the uh, capital of the richest country in human history. Which you know, and when I first started field work, I had like a grand total of twelve computers in mm-hmm. computer lab. And that the most important kind of social function of that library was as a gathering and rest space um, for homeless folks, largely older black men um, who were uh, came over every day and were uh, often um, dropped off directly from sh- uh, shuttles from their shelters. And the, the men and women that I hung out with there, um, especially uh, Josie, Ebony, Mia, and Sean, just had nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And that meant they largely ignored all the training opportunities around them, which seems like a fairly rational decision. I mean, like they, Sean, you know, would tell me that like, it's, you know, it's not like if I learn Photoshop or whatever, that I'm suddenly going to, as a guy who didn't graduate college and has like, you know, years of gaps in his resume or didn't even graduate high school and has years of gaps in his resume. It's not like I'm going to be hired by a startup tomorrow, no matter what I learn. Like that's, he's right. He's very smart. He really perceives that. Um, And what they needed instead was a safe space where they could hang out. But that safe space was not what the library needed in order Mm. to secure its own future. 
So unfortunately, over the course of the seeking the renovation and eventually getting the renovation, you saw those kind of safe space functions slowly getting pushed away uh, and eventually getting, you know, physically segregated from the rest of the technology. You know, the computer lab where people hung out was not a training center like the library wanted it to be. You know, people were playing YouTube or whatever. So it needed to be kept away. Mm. from the places that looked more like the future. And so unfortunately, that means that, you know, people who, you know, straight up needed a place to sleep, got kicked out of the library, you're not allowed to sleep at the library, like you wouldn't sleep at the office. And that may seem like a perfectly sensible choice. But it is a choice, you know, that when we say that you need to be productive in the library, That's a very specific choice about like what the library is for and what its goals are. We could just as easily say that the library is a space for rest and we could make space for people to sleep because it's not easy to sleep at a shelter. It's even less easy to sleep outside, um, especially if you're under some kind of psych medications that are strong sedatives, you're going to find yourself sleeping during the day. Mm -hmm. So we could make the choice to make the library a place for sleep. And that would welcome lots of people who don't have that but that's not what a library is for. Mm. And that's not the thing that kept funders happy and politicians happy. So people who were doing things like sleeping were slowly pushed out of the library, sometimes by force through the library police. Um, And that's, you know, ultimately while the book is like a love letter to DC, you know, a city that I adore and I, I don't think gets enough attention outside of Congress, it really is a, it is written self consciously as a tragedy because these institutions end up pursuing pursuing goals that are kind of against their values uh, and against the needs of the people that they're supposed to serve because they need to keep themselves alive. Yeah, I can definitely recommend everyone uh, should check out the book. It's a great read. Um, I really enjoyed uh, the uh, very personal touch and the uh, different stories that you're telling in the book. And I think, um, I mean, the overarching story is obviously very interesting to academics, but I think a lot of the uh, more personal elements, you know, we're going to be connecting with everyone. So Professor Daniel Green, thank you so much for being part of the forum. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.